Let's turn our attention to Nehemiah chapter 9. Open your Bibles, and uh, we're going to read a big, long chunk of text today. We will not uh, work through the entire text today, because uh, we don't have near, nearly enough time. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to read all, all the way through verse 37 of Nehemiah chapter 9. And I have, well, I don't have to do this, but I, I chose to do this because uh, the text really goes together. It really, it really uh, it's, it's one chunk of text together that we have to look at. But there's no way we can actually treat the entire text uh, in one Sunday morning. So we'll be in this at least uh, next week as well uh, to finish off the rest of the text. I titled my message today, The People Confess and Repent. Quite frankly, I think it's going to be my title for the next number of messages all the way through chapter 10 even because that's where the confession and the repentance of the people of Israel happens. And I will remind you, I'll probably say this again during the message, but I will remind you something I've said Lots of times throughout this whole uh, series already, maybe you're tired of hearing me say it, we are now reading, although we commonly think of the book of Nehemiah as this great story of the return of the people of Israel and the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, which does happen, of course, and it, and it is a significant event, although we think that that's maybe the, the highlight or the, uh, the reason that this is recorded for us, I submit to you that what we are now reading is the reason that, we're, that this book is recorded for us. I mean, maybe you can't really separate them, but what I see happening is God doing a, a physical project among his people at the same time he's doing a spiritual project among his people, and it's the spiritual that God is always more interested in. Well, let's read Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and we're going to pick up, and we'd spend a couple of weeks, so we'll maybe try to fill in some gaps, but let's just read the text, and then we'll see where uh, the Lord takes us this morning. Verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs, so they still have this platform with the stairs that we read about in chapter 8. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, and they're going to name some more of them, some of the same guys, by the way. Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Peth, Pethahiah st stood, sorry, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. For you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you were righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. 
And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and law and a law by Moses, your servant. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they... And our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day, or by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. In case you're having a hard time tracking along, I want you to pay attention. Let's finish off the reading of, the, of this morning by having you stand to your feet while we finish this reading. We're going to be in verse 22. I hope you're following along. Would you stand as we read now? And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of, the heaven, of, of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured four to five cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies and who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years, verse 30 tells us, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. 
Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, verse 36, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. God, it's a long text for us this morning. We confess we sometimes have a hard time tracking through long texts but we believe that you want to teach us and we believe that your word is worth our attention to and our, our picking apart and our digging into and our instruction by. Quite frankly, God, this is not normally how I pray beginning a sermon, but quite frankly, God, we see ourselves in these words, in these sentences, if we're willing to be honest. We see ourselves. We see all the things that you have done and we see all the things that we have done and we see the great discrepancy between the two. So I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. Help us to see not just what happened back then, but what is happening today, what you want from us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, of course. So we're going to dig through this text. I told you we're not going to make our way all the way through it. We're going to start at the beginning and start tracking through what happens here. This is a text called that the people confess and they repent. But we have to get to where we started because you remember that the people all gathered together and they gathered together because Nehemiah was pressured, or was not pressured, that made it sound negative, was, was, was pressured by the Holy Spirit to take a census of the people. And he wanted to find out who all the exiles were. And as they were gathered together, they began to read the law. And as they began to read the law, they began to weep because they realized how much they had missed God by. They began to see just... They began to see this history, everything that you just heard coming out of this confession. They began to see and realize those things as they read the Word of God in that square over that day and over the next uh, number of days. And they began to see how they had not been obeying God. And so first of all, when they were wanting to respond, the Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah the Levite said, no, no, not yet. They held them there, and you have this sense of it building inside of them. He said, today's a day of joy. God is restoring something in us, and today's not a day for mourning and weeping, but a day of joy. And, and as they as sort of was building, and they find out they're supposed to do this Feast of Booths, and they go through the Feast of Booths, and this is how we get to this day. I'll just put the verse up there. On the 24th day of this month, that began, that reflects all the way back to chapter 8, where it says that on the first day of the month, they were gathered together. And on the 15th day of the month is when the, the Feast of Booths started, which went for eight days. So that goes all the way through to the end of to this day right here. The 15th day to the 23rd day. We read the very last verse of chapter 8 says that they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. 
And now this is the very next day. They're sitting there and the scene is set before us. They're in these squares. They made there some huts there for people that weren't living there. They made their huts there. And there's just all these people around and they're sitting there. But look what they're doing. They're fasting and they're in sackcloth, scratchy, ugly, plain clothes that makes everyone look the same. And they have earth on their heads. By the way, I don't know if you've ever been curious. You ever wonder why they put earth on their heads? Ever wonder why, why that's a sign of repentance? I wondered. And I, had, I don't know if this is the answer, but just this week as I was looking through this text, I realized, I remembered, because I had already known this, but I remembered because I looked, was looking at the Hebrew words there. The word for earth there, which means the dirt or the ground, is the word adama, which is, of course, the word for ground, dirt. And as you, uh, if, I don't know if that makes you think of anything, but if you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God formed Adam, Adam, that's the Hebrew word, Adam, out of Adama, out of the ground. That's what he did. He made humans. He made Adam. That's why he's called Adam, by the way. We think Adam is, as a name, which, of course, we use it as a name, but the word Adam is really just the word ground. He's made from the ground. That's, that's why he was named Adam. So in a sense, I believe that earth on your head is a, is a symbol that you understand your humanity, that you know that you're human, that you're created by God that you belong to him. It's a return back to, it's a, it's a hum, humbling of yourself. It's a turning back to recognizing, walking outside and recognizing, I was made from this stuff. That's what God made me out of. And that's all I have to offer God is dirt. They're sitting there, the people of Israel, they're fasting, they're in sackcloth, they have earth on their heads. They're responding they're responding to 24 days of waking up. 24 days of realizing that this wall that we built was an incredible act by God. But what God is really interested in is in this group of people that he wants to form his identity in and wants them to realize that it's not about a city I'm protecting. It's about a people that I'm protecting. It's not about a city I'm restoring the identity of. It's about a people that I'm restoring the identity of. And I can tell you that's exactly what God is interested in you and I. We, we, we started this off and I encouraged, I asked us to think of ways that we have to build walls back up. And for many of us, that probably turned into some physical things, right? Like we should stop letting this into our house. We should start having this. We should rebuild this protection. We should not let my, our children dress like this or do this. I hope those were part of the conversations and, and thoughts that went through your head. But I can tell you that those things are part of the physical rebuilding it's the spiritual, it's the internal, it's the real identity that God is interested in. When this happens, that'll take care of itself, by the way. And here it is, for as they begin to hear the word of God, and the word of God comes out, and by the way, they're reading it. This, I think the implication is the entire time through. Look at what verse 3 says. They stood in their place, and for a quarter of the day, a quarter of the day, I made this joke, kind of a joke, but this joke before, but... I mean, you, sometimes we complain when I preach too long, right? I've yet to go a quarter of a day where you're reading the Bible or hearing me speak from the Bible. For a quarter of the day, they're reading the book of the law, and for a quarter of the day, they're confessing and, re and worshiping. This is no small potatoes. I'll tell you, by the way, when, if we ever wonder, we, we, we bumped into this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning. If we wonder why we don't see God doing great things in us, I, I, I suggest that sometimes we should not look too far past our noses and question whether we're willing to do 
the work required to have God work great things in us. I want us to see very clearly that this confession and repentance is driven from the reading of the Word of God. As they begin to know who God is, many, think about for many of them, they lived in exile. They had no idea, I mean, they maybe have known or heard some stories about God. They had never seen that this is the written out, this is who God is, and this is who you are, and this is what God has done, and this is what you did. And as that happened, they began to realize just what an awful place they were in. They began to realize that a broken city wall is the least of our concerns. The Word of God is what prompts, what brings out confession and repentance, because it is what tells us who God is. I already said this, but I'll say it again, because I think it should be drummed in our heads. It tells us who God is, and it tells us who we are, and the giant gulf between those two. As the Holy Spirit reveals what is said in here, it tells us not just who, but it tells us what. It tells us what God has done and tells us what we have done. Maybe not us personally, but did you catch what it said here? They were making confession not just for their own sins, but for the iniquities of the fathers. In fact, much of this confession that I read didn't have much to do with them at all, did it? It had to do with what their forefathers did. But in the same way the Word of God tells us what God has done and what we have done, and again, the vast difference or gulf between those two. And it's at those moments that the Holy Spirit, when we are exposed to this, that he begins to, to stir or to touch in us and say, I am in a desperate situation. I, we are in a desperate situation. For God is high and lifted up, and I am lowly. For God has done these wonderful things, and I continually spit in his face. God has made all these ways for me, and I continue to go my own way. God has provided all this power for me, and I want to do it in my own strength. Pick whatever you want to. But the Word of God is fueling this confession. 24 days leading up, exposure to the Word, gathered together, and, 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 and being together as a community, and this is the culmination. And I want to just put up this verse yet because I think it's important. One more point I want to make before we get to the actual confession itself. This is actually verse 2, so I realized I went backwards there, but I wanted to put this one last before we start talking about their confession. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. I refer to this verse. I didn't read it. Now, there's a little word, depending on what translation you're reading, uh, this, it makes a, little more, makes a little more clarity here. Is it actually says the seed of the, of the Israelites, those who were of Israelite descendancy is what they separated. And by the way, remember, they, they know who it is, right? Because they just took a census. They just know, they, they know, they just took time to all declare their lineage to say, I'm from this, from this, from this, from this, so I know that I'm part of the people of Israel. So they know, and they separated themselves. Now, that was important because, again, as they were reading the Word of God, the law, the book of the law, they realized that that's exactly what God had asked of them to do, to separate themselves from all the uncleanness around them. But I made the statement that confession and repentance is driven by the Word of God. The next statement I want to make about this in general sense is that confession and repentance also demands our separation from that which makes us impure. It can be no other way. 
when we begin to realize how far away we are from where we should be, we begin to leave where we are away and move towards where we should be. This is, this is not, this is a biblical concept. In fact, if I want to show you exactly how biblical it is, a guy named Paul in the New Testament wrote a letter to the Corinthians. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says this, do not be, une he's talking to us as believers, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And here it is in verse 17, very clear, very plain. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, by the way, I want to point out what's, uh, what's interesting about this. is This is actually a quotation in 2 Corinthians. Paul is quoting Old Testament. So if you put this in context, what Paul just quoted to give us, New Testament believers, a rationale for being uh, touching no unclean thing, for separating ourselves from the things that make us impure, is the exact same words that the, these, Nehemiah, these people in Nehemiah's day would have been reading from the book of the law that told them to separate themselves from those who were foreigners. Because he quoted from books like Leviticus and uh, from Isaiah. He, 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 Paul is quoting from the same things that these people would have been reading. But the mandate hasn't changed, has it? When we begin to realize how far away we are from what God has asked of us, confession and repentance demands that we separate ourselves from that which has made us impure. It has to be that way. There's no other, there's, there's, there's no other option. I mean, Paul asks a series of questions. What can righteousness have to do with lawlessness? What can light have to do with darkness? What can Christ have to do with of God, with Belial? What does a believer have to share with an unbeliever? What portion? It's not the common lot. We don't, we're, not, we're, not, we're not ending up in the same place. We're not have the same goals. We're not, we're not, we don't, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So, here we have a group of people that have been paying attention. They've been listening to the word of God. They've realized how far away they are. And they've started to separate themselves. And they say, we need to confess where we have erred. And not just us, but our forefathers, where we have erred. We need to talk to God about this. And so they make confession. I'm going to spend time looking at this confession, and here's where we're not going to be able to get through the entire rest of the text because there's too much there. But the first thing that happens I want to draw attention to is when these Levites stand up and they say these words. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. It's, it's kind of a, a benediction or a blessing to start the confession. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Now, to show you that I'm not just making things out of nothing, I want to make one more connection back before we go forward. How many of you remember, this is going to be quite some time ago, but how many of you remember when we were way back, first part of Nehemiah, and I shared with you these two Hebrew words, kum bana, which mean to rise and build. If you were to travel all the way back to chapter 2, Verse 18, it's where Nehemiah is exhorting the people. He's first telling them about his idea to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And he's exhorting them. And if you remember that day, I shared this 
because it was the exhortation to come on, let's get to this, rise up to the occasion and build. I want you to see that in this text today, in chapter 9, verse 5, when these Levites who are no longer calling people to rise up to a physical rebuilding, but now they're calling people to rise up to a spiritual rebuilding, they use the same phrase. Well, not the exact same phrase, because instead of kum bana, it is kum barak, which means to rise, bless. Again, we should see a mirror. The, the, the first half of Nehemiah was a mirror for us as to what God really wants. He brought them back, and he worked through this man named Nehemiah who rallied the people and said, we're going to rebuild the wall to establish protection, to establish uh, things from that's what should be inside from going out there and what should be outside from coming in here, but more than anything to establish identity. And now we see what God really wants to do. As they're gathered together inside of this city, as they're exposed to the word of God, as he's stirring in them and they're realizing how far away they are from what God has asked of them, now the cry comes out. Rise and bless. I can tell you, as strongly as I exhorted you back on that day to be the ones willing to rise up and establish protection for yourself and for your family and for this church body and identity in Christ for yourself and for your family and within this church body, I can tell you, with even stronger exhortation, I ask you to be willing to rise and bless God. What we're going to read here, what you see, what we see, what we call confession and repentance is, by the way, the primary mechanism by which we bless God. Especially when we look at what confession really is. Look at what makes up their confession. Look at the things they're saying. We think of confession, I mean, not wrongfully so, but we think of confession as this narrow little thing that when I... I sinned and I became aware of it or maybe it became unavoidable that it was going to come out that I confess to that specific sin and I tell God I did this and I'm sorry. But that's not the confession we're reading here today, is it? The first, I don't know, 11, 12 verses have nothing to do with what the people were doing. Look at what they're focused on. They're focused on God. They begin by saying, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And look at all the you words, all the you phrases, verses 6 through 15. You are God. You alone. You made the heavens. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham. You brought him out. You gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You're the one that made a covenant. You saw the affliction in Egypt. You're the one that brought these afflictions to them these, uh, and, and performed these signs and wonders. You divided the sea. You brought the pillar of cloud. You brought the pillar of fire. You gave, uh, met Moses on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them commands. You made things. You, you, you. I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, the first part of confession always has to be about God. There is nothing to confess if it's not focused on who God is. That's exactly the trap our humanistic world is in, is we think the rules are made by us. Then there can never, there's never any reason to confess if that's true. Because what I make is my own rule, I can never violate, right? Because I'll just change it. All of this is based on the premise that this comes from you, God. You are God alone. There is no other. You did all this. You did all this. You did all this. You did all this. All of this can be summed up by this wonderful phrase at the end of verse 8. I love this phrase. I love this confession they're making. It's very important as we're going to build to the next parts. And you, God, have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You understand 
that we could summarize basically the entire Bible with that phrase right there. You, God, have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You're right, God. You are completely righteous, and you have kept your promises. Everything you have ever said, God, has come true, has happened. There's not a thing that you spoke or not a thing that you said would happen that hasn't or will not come to pass. Some things are yet future. I should, I should, I should uh, be honest about that. But you are righteous, God. And everything you, you have said, you have kept your promise. Which, that of course stands in contrast then because in verse 16, they start turning the corner. Because the entire confession is not just made up about how great God is. That's called praise and adoration. Which is a good part of confession. I just told you that. But then they turn the corner and verse 16 says this. Has this awful word but in front and says, but they, our fathers, they acted presumptuously and they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. This is now the part of confession where we understand that while I have spent so much time talking about you, God, and who you are and what the standard is, I now have to admit that I didn't reach that standard. I want you to notice something. Something that's very critical in their confession. In the ESV, I don't like this because they actually, we miss it. If I would not have looked at the Hebrew words behind this, I would never have noticed this. Because in the ESV, it says, they and our fathers acted presumptuously. That's the Hebrew word zud, Z-U-D. You don't need to know about that word. It means to be proud or to be presumptuous or arrogant. If you go back in those verses and look back when they're talking about what God did among the Egyptians, in verse 10, it says that God did this among Pharaoh and his servants and all his people, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. It's the exact same word, zud, arrogantly. But it's what they're saying that I want to draw out, not the words, but what they're saying. They just put themselves in the same camp as the Egyptians. They just described themselves with the same word that they described the Egyptians with. Now, I, I want you to know that that's, that's a big deal. Because they just took themselves from, we're Jewish and we're God's chosen people and we're different than all the people around us because we're God's chosen people and somehow feeling, because of that feeling, entitled to what God is doing in them. And they said, we are just like those godless Egyptians that God had to perform all these miracles and signs and wonders on. It would be akin to you and I today in our confessions calling us, identifying ourselves by the same name as the worst murderers, Jeffrey Dahmer. And saying, I'm no different. I tell you, that's big. I also tell you, that's important. I also tell you, that's critical in confession. Friends, I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a human just like you are. And I see this much more clearly in other people than I see it in myself. But I know, because I'm watching, I'm, I'm dealing with other people in my, job, my line of work. You know this, I deal with people all the time. Many of them are you guys, so I hope you are okay with me saying things like, things like this. Not all of them is with you guys, though. But because I know I see it in people I work with, I know it's true in me as well. But one of the most devastating, damaging, hindering things to our confession 
is that we have a tendency to always still hold ourselves up above, that we're not quite as bad as this down here, or to make some excuse or justification for our sinfulness. Universally, now I can say this because I've seen it in not just a few of you, but in many of us, and again, not just limited to this group that's here this morning. I've obviously I've not interacted with every single one of you. But it is rare. I can just tell you from a pastor's perspective, it is extremely rare to hear someone make a full confession of sin with no excuse, with no justification, with no rationalization, with no somewhere keeping myself just above the bottom. And in this text, I find instruction to us in just one little word like Zud, where they said, we were just like the Egyptians. We were no different. For today's message, since a very clear thread has been on who God is and how important that is in confession, uh, can I just tell you, maybe I just make this as plain as possible. If you really spend adequate time studying who God is in here and sincerely allowing the Holy Spirit to press it in on you, you will have no problem making proper biblical confession. No problem at all. Because it'll be obvious, it'll be so obvious to you how far short you fall. Maybe that's half our problem. Maybe that's why we still hold ourselves up there because our confession starts with our sin instead of starting with God. Once again, we're like halfway through the text here and we just started talking about what they did. We, the whole thing was about who God was and what he did. But since that's where it brought us to today, I want to end with that because I want to end with one of the most powerful, stunning confessions. See, confession isn't just, isn't just how bad I am. It's also how incredible God is. It's a confession of how amazing he is. One of the most incredible, stunning confessions, descriptions of God in the entire New Old Testament, maybe in the entire scripture tucked away in here as they're talking about the fact that we went back and forth. You chose Abraham and you pulled him out. You, you, we went down to Egypt. You heard our cries. You brought us out. You won us within the wanderings. You brought us in the promised land. You gave us all this stuff. We did all this bad stuff. All the way through, we were, we were stiffening our necks. We were saying, oh, I don't want to do it that way. We don't want to go back to slavery. All the way through, you kept turning and we kept saying, okay, we'll come back. And then we went away again and then you kept turning. And all the, even when we had our established kingdom, we did all that. And all of that, in the midst of all that, we have the last part of verse 17, which is such an incredible statement. Whoops, I already went forward once. Now I gotta go back. There you go. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. If I somehow had the ability, if I somehow had the ability this morning to reach deep into your brain and into your heart and to your very soul. If I could somehow reach into there and imprint these words into the very deepest core of who you are about who God is, I would. I believe with everything I have that if you and I gain the realization of this truth about who God is, it changes 
how we see ourselves in Christ. God, you are ready to forgive. <laughs> you're ready. It's like you're waiting. You're waiting. You're ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding. You're abundant in your steadfast love. And you do not forsake us. My only hope this morning, brothers and sisters, in knowing that I can't actually do that, I can't reach down inside of you, I can't press that in. I can't remind you of that tomorrow morning when I wake up, when you wake up. I can't remind you of it next week when you're going through something difficult. I can't remind you of it the next time that you do sin, which you're going to, and you're going to realize that you've again strayed away from God. I can't, I can't do that, but my only prayer to you, my only prayer for us this morning is that the Holy Spirit who can exactly do that will do that and that you will allow him to do that. God. I pray in this moment, our hearts are not like those that we're reading about in the text today. Our necks are not like those we're reading about in the text today that are stiff. Our ears are not like those in the text today that were closed, but that our hearts are open and our necks are yielded, are, 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 are molded before you, are humbled before you. Our ears are open to you. And I pray that in this time, this, this, these, these next seconds here, these next minutes, maybe hours, whatever it takes, that you would take the truth of all this part of confession we talked about this morning. Oh, there's plenty of time for us to respond to it, and we're going to. We're going to allow ourselves to be built toward it just like they did back then. But before we get there, that it would be pressed in upon us, God, who you are, the wonderful things that you have done, but more than that, who you are. You are God alone. There is no other. And you're a God ready to forgive. <laughs> that is like water to a thirsty soul for those of us who are so aware of our sinfulness. God, you're a God who is ready to forgive. You're waiting. You're waiting for us to come to you. Repentant. You're merciful. You're gracious. You're slow to anger. You're abounding, you're abounding in steadfast love. Your mercies, Father, are so great. Though we suffer because of our sinfulness, you are faithful. You do not change who you are. You do not forsake us. This morning, God, may we collectively, as the people of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, gathered here together in this building, May we open ourselves up and allow you to reach inside of us and convince us in the very core of who we are that this is who you are. I know you want to do things in us because of that realization, but it begins with that, Father. And this morning, we don't want to move past you. We want to allow you to do that in us. Church, brothers and sisters this morning, 
with your eyes closed in prayer still. There's a sense, there's a pulling for me that we ourselves should acknowledge this morning from our mouths how great God is. So I'm going to invite you. I, I want you to do it out loud. I'm going to invite you to just, as the Lord brings phrases to your mind, as the Holy Spirit impresses upon you how great God is, that you would just be willing to say them out loud this morning. God, may you be praised. I pray, Father, that you would hold these thoughts in our head. You fill in the gap between this week and next week as we finish this text. And you do the same work in us that you were doing in the Israelites in that day. This reformation, this rebuilding, this spiritual identity. And we see that that involves confession and repentance. And so we want to tell you today as the great and mighty God, perfect, just, holy, pure, righteous, loving, kind, compassionate, all those things we just said, that we want to be humble before you. We want to have earth on our heads, so to speak, to identify ourselves as your creation, humbled before you, that you may have your way with us. We thank you. We thank you. Oh, God, God, we thank you that you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and that you do not forsake us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.